Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Max Minute, where we fight for a belief in Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 39, which begins with Big Rebecca calling Papagallo's plans into doubt, and it ends with Max laying out the terms for his next arrangement with Papagallo. Big Rebecca is annoying. <laughs> I don't know yet whether or not I agree with her, mm-hmm. whether they should stay or go, but she's annoying about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a tough decision. If they go, there will be trouble, and if they stay, it will be double. Yeah, I think it's opposite that, though. <laughs> I think if they go, it'll be twice as bad as if they stay. Yeah. So I guess I'm on the side of them staying. But that's only because I've seen the movie. <laughs> so I, I know not to trust Lord Among Us. You have that literary irony? Liter- something like that? There's, there's a special phrase for when you know something that the characters don't know. I think it's called dramatic irony. Okay. So. I have it. I'm going to go with that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Papagallo just gave this big stirring speech about how their lifeline is the tank and, you know, they got to defend the fuel and Big Rebecca is looking up at him and she says, words, just words. She goes on to say, you'd die for a pipe dream. And so first of all, good pun. Yes. I definitely give her credit for that. Good pun. Secondly, what really shouts out to me about this situation is that Papagallo has lost Big Rebecca's faith. She believed in him up until this morning because Nathan believed in him. And I think she's raising such a ruckus because Nathan put all of his trust in Papagallo's plan. Nathan went out. Nathan was brutalized and injured and came back and died in her arms. I think that specifically is what is making her such a nudge about this whole thing. Interesting point about Nathan, though, of all eight scouts that left the compound that morning, Nathan was the most effective because he technically came back with Max. Yes. I mean, he didn't find Max. Max found him. Right, but Max provides the rig. Exactly. So Nathan did exactly what they were hoping he would do. He's kind of the hero of the hour, so to speak, if mm. you were still around to be the hero. Well, there are plenty of heroes that are dubbed heroes posthumously. The idea of Nathan above the, all the other scouts, because we actually got to meet Nathan of a sort. The story was able to move forward because of Nathan, but he reiterates this idea of dying for something that you believe in. Mm-hmm. Does that mean he's a martyr? He died for a cause? That's hard to say yeah. specifically. I hmm. Well, we both have smartphones. We can look up the definition of a martyr. Maybe that will help. I feel like the idea of being a martyr is a bit more sometimes religious, sometimes political. Nathan died because he believed that he would be able to find a rig big enough to haul the tanker out of the wasteland. He definitely died in the line of his duty to the compound. Yeah, I think it's more that he died in the line of duty rather than he was martyred. The definition of a martyr is a person who is killed because of their religious or other beliefs. He wasn't killed because... I'm not even sure what they believe in. Like, Virginia says that she's fighting for a belief. She stays. Well, what 
is that belief. Yeah. I think the belief that Virginia is referring to is the belief that they will be able to get out alive, that they can take the fuel and get where they need to go in safety. Because that's the idea, that's the belief that Papagallo is selling. Mm -hmm. The idea that they built up this compound out of the wasteland and that they can still have their cake and eat it too. I think okay. that specifically is the belief. Okay. Uh, and while that belief is not a religious belief, there are undertones of religious belief. I think it's the kind of belief that can generate conviction. Yes. And motivate people to act. Not all beliefs need to be religious in nature. Some no. can be very secular and can do a lot of good in a secular sense without needing any sort of deity or object to rally around. It's just a physical goal that a lot of people work towards. I think that works out as far as what the warrior woman's talking about. Yes. And Rebecca's having none of it. She has lost faith. And I like how Virginia puts a pin on her statement by saying that they're fighting for a belief and she just simply says, I stay. Virginia's not going to go anywhere. If everybody in that compound decides to walk out that front gate and go take the humongous up on his offer, mm -hmm. Virginia's going to be left in that compound and she has vowed to essentially fight every last marauder that tries to come in there and take the place from her. Not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. I mean, I admire her conviction, certainly, in the face of probably dying. Mm -hmm. That willingness to stand up and fight for what you believe. Is certainly admirable. Yeah. But at what point is it foolish? Well, if you want to get philosophical about it... Well, what else are we here for? You could argue that most beliefs are at their core foolish because there are some schools of philosophy that say that life has no meaning and everything dies eventually and there's no point to anything. So don't waste your time on things that aren't economical. You know, at the same time, there's also those philosophical schools that say the exact opposite. That belief is incredibly important and that without belief, our life has no direction. So it's kind of hard to look at it in a general sense. You kind of have to look at the situation, pick a school of thought and say, okay, I'll look at it from that point. I kind of look at it from the point of view that the meaning of life is what you assign it to be. And for Virginia and Papagallo, their meaning in life is getting this fuel, putting it in the tanker, and then going north to the coast. Yes. Like, that is their purpose in life. And the Horde represent an antagonistic force that is threatening that purpose in life, which makes the plan that they want to enact incredibly precious. Something that needs to be protected, something that needs to be put in action, because that is what they have decided to circle their lives around. So, like you said, at what point does it become foolish? Looking at it that way, there's no point where it becomes foolish, because it is their everything. Yes. From Virginia's point of view, at some point, they're either going to live or die. If they're going to die, does it really make a difference if they die because they took Humongous up on his offer and he slaughtered them like pigs? Or they die defending the compound and the gas that could take them north? You know, I, I think she would rather die defending the oh, compound. Yeah. She looks at the idea of taking Humongous up on his offer as heresy, pretty much. Yes. There are a lot of people in this compound, from the look of it, that do not share that ideal because as Virginia is up on the bus gate saying these things with such great conviction there are people in the yard 
gathered around Big Rebecca that are just willing to pack it up and pack it in. And they walk to Big Rebecca and they just throw down their weapons in front of her to say, you know what? We're tired. It's a lot of people. Yeah. I would say a majority of the people are willing to just give up. It might sound a little mean, but these people don't look like warriors. They barely look like wastelanders. These don't strike me as the kind of people that belong out in the post-apocalyptic wilderness. They look like the kind of people that really don't want to fight in a wasteland war, that don't want to get involved in this conflict. Getting a really good look at a lot of the no-name background compound dwellers makes me wonder how this particular group was gathered. Mm Mm-hmm. Where do these people come from? My best guess is these are ranchers and farmers who live out in the wasteland area, who don't live in the cities or the suburbs. They kind of pooled themselves into this compound. But the group of people we see don't strike me as ranchers and farmers. I have a theory about where the compound dwellers came from. Mm Mm-hmm. So we know that Pavagallo was a high-up executive at a energy company. We learned that from the screenplay. It's woven into his backstory. It's part of who he is. I think that a lot of the people in that compound are either employees of his or people that as he was heading out of the city that he was able to pick up along the way. That either he found or he sought out or he flagged them down or they flagged him down. That bus had to come from somewhere as he was making his way out of the city. He probably met up with this busload of people who probably all knew each other already. And so they just decided to follow this guy because he at least had a destination in mind. He had a plan. I feel like a lot of people are following Papagallo just because, A, he's eloquent. B, he's got some semblance of a plan. He's got direction. When everything falls apart around you, direction is a very valuable thing. Yeah. Because... It's very enticing. You can come to see that plan as a belief. Yeah. Something to believe in. Because when you lose your direction, then you start to wander and quote Tolkien all you want. There are a lot of people that wander and are very lost. I completely believe that Warrior Woman and Zeta probably worked with Papagallo before the collapse. Curmudgeon could also be a guy that worked with Papagallo before the collapse. But I feel like a lot of these other people in the compound, not so much. Yeah, they're just random people he's picked up along the way. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense, because they're not wastelanders. Like, how they have survived this far is, I think, only thanks to Papagallo. Yeah, and that's why it's so annoying that Big Rebecca looks so dang smug as oh my she is looking up at Papagallo. Yeah, she's really, like, throwing it back in his face. She's got her hands on her hips, and she's looking right at him. Smirking. We go from that shot of her up to Papagallo standing on the bridge, and we hear a new voice as Papagallo is looking over the crowd. That voice belongs to a new character who the credits call the Captain's Girl. So the Captain's Girl is played by Arky Whitley. They call her the Captain's Girl because by the very end of the movie, her and the gyro captain seem to hit it off in some way. There is a plot line involving her and him where they're going to run away from the compound before the dwellers escape in the morning and then she chooses not to. She has a lot of interactions with Bruce Spence. I really like the storyline, but I don't like that she's 
defined by it. It goes back to that idea where George Miller was assigning out names and just at one point stopped. They're going to have a little meet cute where names could be exchanged completely naturally and it wouldn't feel forced, but it doesn't happen. Are names ever exchanged in this movie? Well, in this specific minute, Archie Whitley's character says, I wish it could have worked, Papagallo. And it's one of, I think, the first instances that we actually hear his name as Papagallo. Okay. I haven't gone through and, you know, highlighted and picked out exactly where everyone's name is mentioned. Mm-hmm. Like, a lot of this comes from the end credits. And then we just identify the actor it's attached to. In the screenplay, her name is Lusty. Okay. I'm... Which, uh, that could be read as like a derogatory name. Like, is it just the word Lusty? It's lusty. no like... Yeah, just the word Lusty. Okay. Is that better or worse? Mm, calling somebody Lusty. It's kind of the opposite of naming someone Chastity. Right. You kind of assume that they are promiscuous. So I'm not surprised that they changed it from Lusty because her character isn't really like that. No, I wouldn't say she you is. Know, she doesn't dress provocatively. She's not blurdy. Although she's young, she's blonde, and her top is kind of flowy. Yes. I mean, that but scene she doesn't, where... Yeah, that was certainly an accident. The scene where she was giving Nathan oxygen, she kind of had to readjust the shoulder on her shirt to keep it from dripping too low, so... Yeah. That was definitely an accident, but I'll pretty much just call her Arky. I'll just go yeah. by her regular name. That works for me. That's what I've put her in my notes as. Arky Whitley has a top four on IMDb. Let's run through that real quick. Her number one best known, of course, is The Road Warrior, because most of these are. Number two on the list is 1984's Razorback, where she played Sarah Cameron. Next up is 1999's Without Warning, where she played Megan Turner. And finally, 1994's Princess Caribou, where she played the character named Betty. So Arky Whitley was born November 6th, 1964 in London and died December 19th, 2001 in Palm Beach, Sydney, New South Wales of adrenal gland cancer. She was oh, only gosh. 37. She was very young. She began her acting career in a 1978 miniseries called People Like Us, and she went on to appear in 29 total projects. Her father was an Australian painter named Brett Whitley, and following his death in 1992, she negotiated with the New South Wales government to purchase his studio and run it as a studio museum managed by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Notable appearances not mentioned in her top four include her role as Annie in the miniseries A Town Like Alice, and she has a 13-episode run as Donna Mason on Prisoner Cell Block H. As for her other movies, Razorback is a horror thriller written by Peter Brennan and Everett DeRoche and directed by Russell McCahey. It stars Gregory Harrison, Arky Whitley, and Bill Kerr. I watched a couple of trailers for Razorback and read the summary on IMDb, and it kind of strikes me as similar to Jaws. There's a wild boar that's going around killing people and whatnot, so a couple of the locals band together to take this thing out. And I think it's a bit more supernatural than Jaws, because the boar is so incredibly large and fearsome, but I kind of discovered in researching it the whole subset of boar-related horror movies. I saw at least three or four. 
as I was clicking around trailers on uh, YouTube. Okay. Did it seem like that was an an Australian genre? It kind of did. Okay. It kind of did. I mean, I know boars are dangerous. They will seriously mess you up because they're essentially meat trains with tusks on the front of their face that will gore you. It was a major plot point in Game of Thrones that Robert Baratheon was taken out by a boar. Mm -hmm. And the boars in these movies are usually like huge way bigger than any boar I've ever seen. But even so, they're like super dangerous. You don't mess with them. The next movie in that list was one called Without Warning, which is actually a TV movie. It was written by Peter Yeldum and directed by Catherine Millar. It starred Archie Whitley, Steve Bastoni, and Kim Wilson. There wasn't too much to see about this one on the IMDb page, but from what I could gather, it was about a woman being stalked by a police officer. I'm not quite sure exactly how that worked, But, yeah, I mean, it was a thriller made for TV, so... Yeah. The final movie on the list, called Princess Caribou, is a comedy film written by Michael Austin and John Wells and directed by Michael Austin. It starred Phoebe Cates, Jim Broadbent, and Wendy Hughes. And in the movie... Phoebe Cates plays a young woman in 19th century Bristol, England, who is arrested for begging, but is rescued by a man who says that he can understand the strange language that she speaks. What follows is pretty much a case of mistaken identity and taking that mistaken identity and running with it. They set her up as the lost princess of this place called Caribou, and the story revolves around the men who set up that lie and the local reporter who's trying to debunk it. And what genre did it fall under again? A comedy. Okay. Getting back to the minute, because we gotta do that eventually. <laughs> yep. So Argie Whitley is in the crowd, and she initially says, I wish it could have worked, Papagallo. You can't expect to compete with that. Every day we get weaker while they get stronger. It's finished. And then she wraps it up by just saying, I'm sorry. That's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. She's so, like, sweet and genuine. And she has an actual legitimate reason for going along with Big Rebecca. Rebecca hasn't really said why she thinks they should do what they should do. Pretty much her argument so far has been, hey, we should believe this guy. Mm. We should take him in his word. He promised. But why? Why should people follow you? I think Arky's the first one to just lay it out very plain. Yes. Because with Rig Rebecca, it's all been subtle text. The idea, I don't want to get slaughtered by these people, so let's take them up on their offer, is kind of permeating what she's saying. But Arky's like, hey, listen, Papagallo, we just don't want to die. Which is legitimate. It's okay to not want to die. But amidst all of this confusion, we cut back to Max. And this is about halfway through this minute. He's sitting atop the wall. He's relaxed at this point. He's been sitting back and watching this all unfold. This is the point where he decides to speak up. And so he takes his fingers and he puts them in his mouth and he blows and it does a nice loud whistle. I don't know how to do this. And so it seems like a foreign thing to me. I just, (laughs) I'm not good at it. Yeah, I can't do it either. I've tried many times and it just has not worked for me. I've never tried. (laughs) (laughs) He whistles. Everybody in the compound looks over to where he's sitting on the wall because everyone has forgotten about him. Mm -hmm. This here might be one of my favorite Max moments in the entire series of war movies. I don't know if it's my absolute favorite, but it's definitely up there in my favorite moments. Max is sitting there and he says, two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here, you talk to me. And he does the thing with his hands where he just kind of points at himself. Oh, it's great for so many reasons. (laughs) 
First of all, Max doesn't say a lot, usually. He's pretty quiet most of the time. Yeah, I think this is the most he's spoken this whole movie so far. In a row, yeah. Yeah. Plus, it establishes a timeline for the movie. Which is very helpful. Two days ago is when he saw the rig. So we can keep track of what happened when. Two days ago... He finds the rig. He has his little stare down with Wes, gets the gas out of the buggy in the Landau, and he heads off. As he's heading off, the sun is setting. We come up the next day, that's when he finds the gyrocopter. So if he encounters the rig on a Monday, he's finding the gyrocopter on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. He finds the gyrocopter, finds the gyro captain. Gyro captain says, I'll take you to the fuel. They drive over to the fuel. So they get to the top of that hill, still Tuesday, and they spend all day watching the attack when it gets to evening time sun goes down sun comes back in the morning it's wednesday that's pretty much all of what was it like minute 21 through 25 was that wednesday morning and it's still technically wednesday because he went down saved nathan brought him back it was only like a two mile drive so it probably only took him a couple of minutes if my estimations are correct i'm pretty sure the entire span of this movie takes less than a week yeah that seems about right i really appreciate that we have a solid time frame a lot of movies you don't and so as evidenced by mad max 79 we spent a long time not really knowing what's happening when. yeah so there's a lot of conjecture and assumptions and trying to suss out how much time may have passed and in the end we really had no way of knowing so mm-hmm. this is fantastic the whole idea of using sundown sunrise as a way of counting time it kind of reminded me of my time when i was doing episode recaps for this show on nbc called siberia it was a scripted show but they presented it like it was a reality show and the whole conceit was like survivor but they didn't have games and eliminations and it was this whole thing as i was going and analyzing it the entire first season takes place over like a week and a half, two weeks, and there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in that span of time. It was kind of nice to get back to that old way of counting like I used to do. (laughs) I would not recommend going back and watching those recaps without watching the show because you lose a lot of context when it's only me just talking about it. It exists, but it's a pretty big caveat. One other thing that I appreciate about this is that he says, you want to get out of here, you talk to me, and then there's a large enough span of time between him saying me and the score picking up that... You can isolate that audio and use it for things like show intros. Yes, how convenient for you. It was very convenient for me. I know that's the last thing that they were thinking about when they were putting the score together for this movie, but I still appreciate it. We get a wipe and it shifts us to later in the day. Suspiciously later in the day. I know that once the sun starts going down, like it goes down fast, but how much time passed between when he said, you gotta talk to me, and we see them next in conference yeah if the scouts went out at first light and they spent all day arguing about what to do lord humongous probably came back around what like midday they must have done something to occupy themselves over the afternoon but for the sake of brevity we just skip right to sunset the picture that we come in on you've got the mechanic and the mechanic's assistant there over on the right side of the frame but over on the left side of the frame it looks to me like the feral child is not only sitting on the black on black but he's sitting on the blower of the black on black which may makes me initially say, hey, get down from there. 
<laughs> you can't sit there. That's not a seat. <laughs> I like it. I think it's sweet. I think it shows that he is, that the feral child is forming a connection to Max. Mm-hmm. I think it also shows that it's been quite some time since Max drove up. If the car had been driven recently, the blower would be really hot still. Probably. I don't know exactly how blowers work, but just the heat transfer between metal elements. Yeah, it, it would probably yeah. still be pretty warm but it's been i mean several hours yes yeah, absolutely the sitting that we have now is a big tent in the compound papagallo and other members of the compound are sitting around it and from right to left we get a couple of unnamed people and then it's curmudgeon papagallo zeta virginia david the quiet man and big rebecca they kind of form what i'm assuming is some sort of council of the compound i suppose so I like the idea of a council, a, you know, communal leadership. I wonder, though, if normally Big Rebecca is part of that council or if she's only in here because she is the... The opposition leader? Yeah, the opposition leader. That's an excellent phrase. Yeah. I feel like she's probably one of the more regular voices. She was very free with speaking up. Exactly. So maybe she's used to... A position of power. Mm -hmm. As we get in on this scene, we hear Max again. And he says, okay, so that's my offer. I deliver a rig big enough to haul that tanker. You give me back my vehicle and as much juice as I can carry. It's a very simple deal. It's more or less the same deal that he made with Nathan. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had to add in the part about getting his vehicle back because they were very much going to take it from him, which is a bad move on their part. What I like about what he's doing here is that, kind of like what he did with Nathan, he's being very specific, laying out exactly what he wants. Yes. That way he doesn't find himself in a situation like he had with the gyro captain, where the gyro captain was expecting something to happen that Max never agreed to. And this time he's doing an even better job than what he did with Nathan, that he is speaking to multiple people. Mm -hmm. They are all aware of the agreement and are participating in the agreement. Exactly. It's, I know Max didn't have a choice, but his one-on-one -on -one agreement with Nathan, not very smart from like a negotiating standpoint. I kind of see it as a high-risk, high-reward situation. Max made a bit of a gamble and, you know, his numbers just didn't come up. Right. This point. arrangement here, much more stable, much more reliable. Yes. Much better deal. It's interesting because his prize is the same, as much fuel as he can carry. Mm -hmm. But now he has to do a lot more work for it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But it's you know, much more stable. Exactly. He's also getting his vehicle back on top of that. Yes. I think that's kind of the kicker that makes it justify the higher difficulty. But I, I mean, don't know. They they had no right to take his vehicle in the first place. Yeah. I find it kind of rough to argue either way. I'm not, not too worried about it. Okay. The last thing that happens in this minute is Zeta, who pipes up and he says, we lost. And he's going to describe what they lost pretty much at the top of tomorrow's minute so okay i didn't even catch that, that line oh yeah it's real quick all right two, only two words and he kind of we lost and of course it's you know there's yeah. a sentence that keeps going after that but okay we'll pick up with that tomorrow the Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy. 
and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 39 of the Road Warrior. See you tomorrow.